Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by Native, the company dedicated to creating safe, simple, effective products that will leave you feeling your best and smelling great each and every day. I'll be back after our first story tonight to tell you a little more about our friends at Native, including a special offer they have for those of you listening in tonight. Until then, go ahead and make sure your doors are locked and check to make sure your closet doors are shut like they ought to be. That way, you'll have some warning when they creak open later while you're sound asleep. <laughs> Stay tuned. Show's about to begin. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway?
<laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 19. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing three stories for you about spectral stalkers, sinister storms, and haunting hunts. Listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, if you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Stephen Long. In it, we'll meet a man that crosses paths with the very last person you'd ever want to meet in the dark of night, and the terrible price to pay for meeting his acquaintance. Without further ado, I present to you the Rag and Bone Man. News came to London in the year of 1820 of a series of brutal murders which had been committed throughout the neighboring counties. Reports that a monstrous man, broad, roughly six foot seven in height, had been seen close by to almost a dozen of these incidents. A consistent description of this figure coupled with the bizarrely gruesome conditions in which the victim's bodies were found, gave this hellish figure his name. The victims, both men and women, were found with stab and puncture wounds on their torsos and upper legs, along with severe lacerations to their arms, faces, and shoulders. Though these injuries by themselves were enough to put fear into the hearts of those who discovered them, there were other more ghoulish findings. The victims all had two or three bones missing from their bodies. The bones taken were always small and from their limbs. The victims always had a long strip of fabric missing from their clothes of the victim's back. Examinations of the body showed no sign that no one injury, including the removal of the bones, could have alone been immediately fatal and it was entirely possible the victims had slowly bled to death. This part of the reports, in particular, horrified and disgusted those who had heard it as it became apparent that the victims had quite possibly been conscious whilst their bones were removed. Lastly, the theory that the strip of clothing from the victim's back may have been used to wrap the removed bones led to the beastly killing, the rag and bone man. As mania swept the southern counties from fear of attack, a different sort of panic began to overcome Luke Whitlock. Luke was a factory worker who had moved to London a few months prior to the first attacks. Luke's wife, Gwen, had not made the move to London with him. They had decided it would be best that he would go first to secure stable work and accommodation while Gwen would remain in their hometown of Godstone. Luke would return home once a month to see Gwen, give her enough money to get by on, and save so their new life in London would have the best start possible. 
Luke had heard stories of the Rag and Bone Man day in and day out for the past few weeks and became deathly fearful for his wife. After days of not eating or sleeping, days of worrying and obsessing over Gwen's safety, he made his mind up. He would travel back to Godstone early. The next day was Sunday, so he had time to pack Gwen's and his belongings and bring her to London. There he could protect her. There she would be safe. Luke left for Godstone that night. A fierce wind was blowing as Luke began on foot to walk the twenty miles back to Godstone. Wrapping himself tight in his overcoat, he willed himself down the roads and lanes of London, thanking God that it was at least dry that evening. The wind hissed in his ears and stung his face as he marched undeterred towards Gwen. Luke loved her more than anything, he would gladly endure ten times the distance, ten times the cold, and far more beyond to be with her, to hold her in his arms and know she was safe. How terribly he missed her! How long were the days and weeks between his visits, and how quickly the time went when they were together! Luke had walked almost all night, and dawn was approaching. His legs were like lead, and his bones ached. His fingers were blue, and his feet were numb. He was now nearly half a mile from home, approaching the final few roads when he saw a very unnerving and unwelcoming sight. Stood at the foot of Godstone Hill was a figure. Luke could not make him out in too much detail, as the soon dawning sun was still beyond the horizon. But in the dim of the dying dark he could make out the figure of a tall and broad man. The man's position lay between Luke and his path, and though apprehensive of passing the foreboding figure, Luke pressed forward. As Luke, near limping, now approached closer, he noticed the man in most great detail. He was about six foot seven in height, possessing a huge frame with a wide chest and broad shoulders hidden under a dark-stained oilskin coat. He had thick, rough black hair at forehead length, with big, scruffy sideburns. The man's arms were at his sides, and both appeared to be holding something thin and metallic. He also appeared to have larger metallic objects protruding from his sleeves of his coat. Perhaps, Luke thought, he had been injured upon noticing the wet, glistening red liquid on the man's hands as he walked closer. Forgetting his aching legs, he hurried to the large man. You okay there, mate? Do you need me to? Luke yelled. The sentence wheezed shut from Luke's mouth as he stopped dead twelve feet shy of the man's position. Luke cursed himself for not trusting his initial judgment of not approaching the man, but if he had been hurt, Luke would have wanted to help him in some way. He would have wanted to help anyone. A noble notion, though not for the first time, may have put him in a less than desirable position. Dawn had begun to lighten the sky by now, and Luke could see the man in all too vivid detail as he turned and looked toward Luke. The man smiled an unnervingly broad smile, which looked to almost unhinge his jaw as his eyes widened and dilated like an animal glimpsing wounded prey. "'Can you do something for me?' the man asked. The words oozed out of his mouth in a malevolent, serpentine nature. 
Well, uh, let me think, young man. Can you do something for me? Can you be of use to me? Upon saying this, the man released his hands from his sides and carefully rolled back the sleeves of his coat. What he revealed scared Luke to his now palpitating heart. His once frost-numb feet were now set ablaze, with each and every snaps burning with palpable terror running through his whole body. His stomach clenched itself, his arms and hands became stiff and contorted as he fought the bile rising to his throat. As the man opened his hands, Luke realized that the metal objects he held were, in fact, two iron spikes piercing from his palms. He thought for a brief moment that they had been bored through the back of his hands, but a quick double-take showed no puncture or even a blemish. They appeared to simply belong there as if they had always been there. As the sleeves of the weather-worn oilskin coat were whirled up, the man's arms, Luke's terror intensified further, as he discovered the man's forearms had almost identical spikes, though double in length, protruding from them, just stopping past his wrists, rising away approximately thirty degrees from running parallel to the man's arms. Luke's short time to process what he was seeing was cut short as the large man leapt at him, swiping one of his barbed hands across Luke's right shoulder. Luke's windpipe felt momentarily seized shut as he struggled to draw breath in shock from the speed of the man's assault, as well as the burning gash ripped across the front of his shoulder. Luke's legs failed him as he crumbled to the floor, holding his shoulder, desperately trying to force air down his throat, trying not to let shock completely overwhelm his tired body. The large man, now feet from Luke's shivering, gasping, and bleeding body, paused briefly to address him. I know what you can do for me now, he said in a dark, condescending tone. You and I are going to play a game. Let's see. What's your name? Luke drew a quivering breath. He held it for a moment in an effort to steady his voice. Luke, my name is Luke. Well then, Luke, I reckon we, the two of us, will call this game. The man stopped mid-sentence. He walked to Luke's feet and pierced his upper legs with a viciously spiked arms. Luke's eyes streamed with tears as he screamed in abhorrent pain and terror, feeling the cast-iron puncture through his legs. Let's call this game. If Luke can get there before bleeding to death, then nobody dies today. The beastly man crouched down to meet Luke's catatonic gaze. Here are the rules. I know there's a woman in Godstone, a woman leaving all alone but wearing a wedding band, almost as if her husband is away, possibly working. I also have a good idea what her husband's name is. Don't I, Luke? Luke's eyes focused swiftly as the weight of the man's words exploded through his ears. Now, Luke. The man rose to his feet slowly, taking his coat off, and revealing a small cloth bag underneath which had been resting over his shoulder. The bag rattled as the man swung it several times under Luke's face. Luke could only get a pacing view of the inside of the bag, but by now he knew what it was filled with. Bones. He remembered in all too much detail the stories, the same stories that had led him down this ill-fated path. 
I reckon from your reaction, Luke, that you know exactly who I am, don't you? The man said in a demanding voice, prompting Luke to answer. The man, now smiling, swung the bag back onto his shoulder and kicked Luke's face, knocking him to his side. So, Luke, who am I? You're the... Luke paused, holding the new swelling cut on his cheek. Tears again ran freely down his face. You're the rag and bone man. Yes, I am. The man sneered. I'm also the man heading to your home. The man paused, putting his coat back on. Let's see if you can get there in time. With that, the rag and bone man ran like a dart and out of sight. Luke rolled calmly onto his stomach, willing his body desperately to move. He crawled in agony a few feet on his hands and knees to a nearby wall and managed to resist passing out from the pain and exhaustion to get to his feet. He had to get to Gwen, but what chance did he have of defending Gwen and himself against the ragged bone man when he got there? He moved so fast. He was so strong and vicious. But Luke breathed deep. He knew he had to try. His sight was becoming blurred, but he had to keep moving. Fraught with pain, Luke made his way with labored pace. His mind, in an agonizing conflict with itself, was at once pushing him to keep his footing while begging him to stop and give respite to his torn and punctured body. Luke stopped for a moment, using most of his remaining strength, he tore the sleeves off his shirt and tied two tight tourniquets around his legs before putting his overcoat back on. This worked well to stem the blood from his punctured legs, and he again rose to his feet. If only he could make it home, maybe the rag and bone man would keep to the rules of his cruel game, and he and Gwen would survive this terror. Though the sun was almost completely up, Luke saw no one around the small houses and barns, as he dragged his near-spent body towards home. He felt groggy and lightheaded, but he forced his legs onwards, his vision hazes doubling at times as he got to fifty yards from his home, his numb and cold body becoming increasingly resilient to his mind's will to him to keep moving when he heard him. You're almost there, Luke, he thought to himself. Luke focused his gaze as best he could at the front door of his home to see the rag and bone man almost hunched under the frame of the as-yet-still-closed door. Come on, Luke, just a bit further and you've almost made it. The rag and bone man tapped his fingers on the door frame and ran his barbed hand up and down the door. As Luke limped and dragged himself agonizingly close to within a few yards of the door, the rag and bone man waited. Luke, my old mate, well done, well done. I'll meet you inside. With that, the rag and bone man turned and opened the large front door, disappearing inside the house and out of sight. The sight of this bird Luke's mind into a near frenzy. His once cold lips and limbs began to tingle with a newly panicked rush of blood. His legs, ridden with holes and exhausted from his long walk, contorted and shook as adrenaline fueled his muscles. Though unable to ignore the painful throbbing or swelling of his injuries, he pushed 
and hobbled into what was so close to being a run yet clumsily and uneven. His eyes burned red with tears and his teeth were near cracking as he gritted his jaw. He had to get to Gwen, and with nothing more than sheer force of will, and a primeval wrenching of his heart to protect his wife, he made it to the house and hobbled inside. The house was small and made of large brick. It only had two rooms, one of the biggest, was connected to the front door, the only door to the house. The large main room had a great wooden table with four chairs, a small range stove connected to a thin tin chimney to the left of the door. On the back wall was a small paned window. The right wall had the door to the smaller bedroom. The smaller room only had a double bed, a small dresser, and a wardrobe, as well as a small paned window. "'Congratulations, Luke,' the rag-and-bone man said, his back to the far wall of the main room. "'Where's Gwen? Where's my wife?' Luke spat his words as he stumbled and struggled to stay on his feet. The rag-and-bone man rushed him, crashing the back of his huge hand into the side of Luke's face, broadening the already swollen cut on his cheek, leaving him punch-drunk and near unconscious. The rag-and-bone man dragged his limp body and propped Luke on one of the chairs at the table. I don't like your tone, Luke, the rag-and-bone man snapped. But you did make it here, and as you won't keep to the rules, let me go and get Gwen for you. Luke's body felt limp as the last of his adrenaline left his muscles, and he felt himself begin to lose consciousness. The rag-and-bone man left for a moment to go to the bedroom. Oh, Luke, I think I may have left something out of our conversation earlier. Luke's eyes shot open as a heap was thrown at him, landing on the table next to him. I should tell you Gwen was never in any danger today. Luke's eyes struggled to focus on the table as the rag-and-bone man walked back and forth and stood next to the burning top of the stove. You see, I know who you were, as your name was the last thing screamed in this house when I paid poor sweet Gwen a visit two days ago. As Luke's eyes focused at the table, his heart bled cold as he could merely look at Gwen's cold, dead body minus her left and right arms. Gwen was no danger today, but she would have really appreciated you being here two days ago. The rag-and-bone man laughed. Luke's crushed body and broken heart tried to will him to rise and attack this evil thing, but his body was done and it would not move. The rag-and-bone man put his spiked arms on the stove. I did say no one would die today, though, didn't I, Luke? Luke could only give a vacant and defeated look at the large beastly man as he took his arms from the stove and walked across to Luke. Without any more words, the rag-and-bone man used his spiked arms to pierce and bind the wounds on Luke's legs. You see, Luke, you're not going to die today because I find you too fun. But, he grabbed Luke's hair, and forced his face into his. A slice in your shoulder, that's a mark, boy. A mark of your time before I return. The rag-and-bone man let Luke's head drop 
making his way to the front door. As soon as that wound is healed, I'll be back, and Luke, I'm only coming back for you, my boy. With that, the rag and bow man left, and Luke passed out. Luke awoke the next day in agony with a broken heart. He slowly arose from the chair, finding that somehow, though painful, his legs were again able to take his weight. His shoulder had scabbed over, and so had his face. Luke dragged a chair to the stove, and after lighting it, simply sat by it and cried. Luke sobbed, wailed, and cried, until no more tears could be made. In the afternoon, Luke began to think about what the rag-and-bone man had said to him, that once his shoulder had healed, he would return. Luke began to form a plan, and as he gently moved his way to the dresser in his bedroom, he found the money that Gwen had been saving for their new life. Luke had a different use for it. It was not by any means a fortune, but was enough for what Luke had in mind. Luke spent the next few days buying foodstocks, bricks, and mortar, and made a special trip to London to buy one very specific item. It took Luke three days to brick up the windows in the house and stock up the house with food, water, and firewood. When he finished, only one entrance to the house remained. As the sun began to set on the fourth evening, Luke filled his house with candlelight sat in the middle of the main room, facing the sole door and entrance to the house. As he ran his hand along his now fully healed shoulder, Luke bent down, picked up his new revolver, sat down, gun in hand, and waited. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope you enjoyed The Rag and Bone Man by author Stephen Long, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got another terrifying tome. This one from author Cameron Suey, known also in creepypasta circles as Joseph K. A tale which takes us years back to simpler times when the prospects of death from illness and disease were much higher. Unfortunately, our protagonist is about to encounter a threat far more unusual than nature itself, riding on the winds of a sinister storm. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Native, and a special offer they have for those of you listening in tonight. The folks at Native are dedicated to creating safe, simple, effective products that people use in their bathroom every day with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. With 8,000 five-star reviews from customers and counting, Native makes it clear that all deodorants are not created equal. And they mean business when they say to you that you ought to take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Now I know what you're thinking. What makes Native so special? Well, first, and most importantly, Native's deodorants are formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. Tasty fillers, chemicals, and compounds that have no business being in or on your body at any time, let alone daily. Native's products are filled with ingredients you know and that are found in nature, such as coconut oil, shea butter, which helps moisturize, and tapioca starch, which absorbs wetness. Did you think deodorants needed all those chemicals and fillers to work? Think again. Native does the same work without the unnatural. Making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't have to mean sacrificing product performance. We here at Scary Stories, told in the dark, had a chance to try out Native for the first time this past week. And simply put, it works. Not only did the coconut and vanilla scent remind me of pleasant memories of baking cookies in winter and warm summer days all at once, it does what it's supposed to keeps me dry and feeling comfortable all day long, whether I'm in the studio or out and about running errands. I've tried other aluminum-free deodorants, and I'll be honest, I nearly got turned out from the stuff because they just didn't seem to work as well as the stuff I grew up with. Some kept me smelling fresh, but they seemed like they uh, make me sweat more than before. Others were irritating, and worse still, some didn't work at all and actually made me smell worse. It was almost enough to give up on using natural deodorants entirely, but I'm glad I didn't. Native's deodorant works, and not only keeps me dry, but the scents are fantastic. All of them, and they don't quit until you do. Not only that, but Native never tests their products on animals, and they offer free shipping, returns, and exchanges in the USA. So there's no risk to try, even if you're unconvinced. With Native, less is more. 
With fewer, simpler ingredients, you can rest easy knowing everything that's in their deodorant. And without added aluminum, you know that no matter what scent you choose, it's going to be safe and effective. Speaking of scents, Native comes in a wide variety of enticing aromas that will appeal to both men and women, as lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint, or my personal favorite, and their most popular, coconut and vanilla. And if that's not enough, they release new limited edition seasonal scents throughout the year. And if you're sensitive to particular scents, no worries. Native offers unscented formula and baking soda-free formulas for you and your loved ones. They really have something for everyone. Still on the fence? I don't blame you. I've been burned by a lot of bad products in my day, and I like to see what other people think before I switch brands. Well, with Native, you can do just that, and there's no shortage of good reviews. People love Native. Don't believe me? Check out their 8,000-plus five-star reviews online, or check them out in the media on the Today Show, Elle Magazine, Pop Sugar, and Refinery29, to name a few. So what do you got to lose? We might specialize in losing you sleep here on this show, but you might as well smell and look awesome when you drag yourself out of bed the next day for work. With free shipping and no hassle returns if you're unsatisfied for any reason, there's never been a better time to try something new. And today, Native is making it even easier to switch. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com use promo code TOLD during checkout. Once again, for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TOLD. That's TOLD, T-O-L-D, during checkout. Be sure to use that code to let the kind folks at Native know that Otis Gyre sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks so much for your time and for giving Native a try this month. Now that we've helped you look and smell your best, courtesy of our friends at Native, allow me to give you a case of the cold sweats that's perfect to test out your brand new deodorant with another terrifying tale. This one comes to us from author Cameron Suey and takes us to the days of yesteryear, which offered far fewer creature comforts, but, as it turns out, no fewer creatures. Without further ado, I present to you Dust. The last storm was already on the horizon when I woke that Sunday morning. It hung in the south, a solid black wall of dust, churning and seemingly motionless. I had every intention of sleeping in late that morning. As had been my Sunday custom since Adele and the girls had left, but the distant rumbling and crackle of lightning drugged me from the bed just after sunrise. I shuffled drowsily around the farm in the early morning, lashing the doors of the barn, rounding up the two stubborn hogs and shuttering the windows, but soon I found myself rooted in place, captivated by the riding shape in the sky. It stretched impossibly wide across the open sky, 
rolling across the border from Nebraska. The air had a dry, electric chill, and already the sickly yellow wheat swayed in anticipation. I was in a trance, eyes locked on the distance, when I saw a small light dust plume to the west, picked out in stark contrast with black beyond. The horse and rider at the base of the little dust devil approached the farm at a sharp trot, and my dust-blurry eyes registered the silhouette. Carl Jordan had owned the farm next to mine for as long as my family had been in the Dakotas. I grew up with his great booming laughter warming our home nearly every night. His usual broad yellowing smile was absent beneath recently trimmed mustache and broad-rimmed black hat. His dark suit was blotted with a fine layer of grit that he brushed absently at. Eddie! His voice was tired and small as he looked down at me. No church today? I hadn't been in months, and he once admitted to envying me. I just didn't see the need any longer, and I've relished the extra hours. I ignored the question. It's troubling you, Carl. Matty all right? I asked. He turned towards the south of the storm and sucked loudly on his lower lip. After a few moments of thought, he sighed deeply with a phlegmy rumble. The Hattersons are dead. All of them, except Saul. He said evenly, not returning his gaze to mine. I drank this in for a moment, feeling the insides of my sinuses beginning to burn in the cold and arid breeze. I briefly dwelt upon the image of the youngest Hatterson, a tow-headed toddler with the dim-looking smile... I'd seen at the general store with Saul and Molly a few days prior. How? I asked finally. He grimaced slightly, still gazing south. Saul's missing. No one's seen him since last night. Molly and the kids are dead, and Saul's gone. They don't sound good. Carl slumped forward a little, and I saw, not for the first time, how old he was. The old hornet's nest is stirred up over in Picton. He was going to lose the farm, they say. Fleetingly, it concerned me that I could easily see the connection between these facts. That is fine, he said after another silent moment. Just a little ill this morning. Thanks for asking. He broke for the black clouds and fixed his eyes on me. He offered a pale imitation of his familiar smile. But his eyes remained squinted tight, haunted. He looked as if he had more to say, but at last he just nodded and gathered the reins. Be safe, Eddie, he said, a phrase worn smooth by repeated use, and turned towards his farm, trotting quickly, Ed still crooked toward the storm. By noon I could only watch as it reached up and blotted out the sun. The dust storm enveloped us, obscuring the sky like the hands of God. I did my best to ration the allotment of bourbon I'd poured off that morning, watching the black wind scour the earth through a broken shutter slat. During the storms of the years before, pale and weak compared to this tempest, Adele would huddle with the girls to read scripture, 
inevitably ending with the revelations in hushed, reverent tones. I tried not to scowl at her fear and awe before, but now I could feel a little tremor of doubt in me as I looked out at the sackcloth sky. When the sky darkened a few shades at nightfall, I prepared a small meal of bread and fried eggs and drained the rest of the bourbon. Later, I laid in the unmade bed with the world spinning and the sky howling outside and tried not to think. The storm raged stronger than ever the next morning, the sun winking through the maelstrom, a fat circle of hazy orange like a fading coal. Late in the day, it showed no signs of abating, and I resigned to leave the house, if only to feed the animals. I tied my goggles to my head and a damp bandana around my mouth, but I still gasped at the ragged burn of the dust when I stepped outside into the storm. The lining of my throat seemed to crack and bleed within moments. I could barely see the barn, but I set out instinctually towards it. A tall hillock of fine black dust was pressed to the side, and it took me a few kicks to clear the door. The dust had seeped in everywhere, and the hogs and cows were covered in a layer of grime. They stood still in their pens, eyes red and glassy, shuddering and jerking with each loud creak from the roof beams. They ignored the food. There was a twisting coil of anxiety in my chest when Carl arrived, leading the terrified horse behind him. His beard was matted with dust, and he had to sweep the lenses of his goggles clean at my doorstep. But instead of entering, he only waved me out to join him. You need to come out with me, he shouted over the storm. The dust between his teeth had formed a thin black mud that flecked at the corners of his mouth. It was his tone, flat and even, that terrified me. I didn't argue, but pulled on goggles and offered him a second bandana. I followed close behind him, one hand on the horse's haunch. Carl picked his way down the path, navigating by some uncanny memory of the curves in the little road. We walked cautiously and deliberately west for the better part of a half mile, past Carl's own farm, towards the leaning shape of the Collins farm. A throbbing dread began to stir in my breast as we approached. The door was thrown wide open and off one of its hinges, swinging violently in the wind. I could see Roger Collins slumped in the doorframe, the congealing blood on his forehead caked with the fine dirt. His eyes were open. The left eye beneath the bullet hole was flooded red and tilted wildly skyward. Clutched in his curled hands was a rifle with one spent casting. Abigail Collins and her youngest were inside, curled tightly around each other in the corner of the room. The flowers of blood that bloomed on the fabric of their dresses was bright and vivid. Slumped upright at the dinner table as if ready for a meal, was another figure, filthy and caked with black dust. He seemed composed, sitting upright and proud, despite the pinprick bullet hole, clean and bloodless, standing starkly in the center of his throat. His grimy skin was dried and shriveled, his eyes were closed, the lids sunken over the pits. 
It took a long, yawning moment to recognize the desiccated face. Saul Hatterson, hands clasped around a little revolver, looking for all the world like he'd been dead for a week. Saul Hatterson, grinning obscenely wide, showing dried black gums. Despite the roaring storm, there was an unearthly stillness in the little house, and I could hear my heart thudding in my ears. I turned to Carl with pitiful expression, a plea for some sort of understanding. I was bringing them some canned food. Roger was worried about being able to last out the long store. He shouted from the porch, where he was closing Roger's eyes and wiping the blood from his hands. He looked up at me and stood. Jed's missing. I gazed around the room again before turning to Carl. You don't think that Jed... I began, letting the idea remain unsaid. Jed was a quiet and sickly kid, but something about him had always set my teeth on edge. No, he barked. I don't think a 15-year-old could be capable of this. But I don't think Saul was, either. None of this makes any sense. He brushed the lenses of his goggles clean once more. No, it does not, I agreed. We should head into Picton to tell someone, but I I need you to drive the Collins Ford. I can make it between our three farms on foot reliably enough, but I don't think me or that horse could make it all the way into town. Carl looked mildly embarrassed, hidden as he was behind dust and beard, and I followed him to the barn. The Model A made a few grinding rasps before dying completely, refusing to respond to anything. When I opened the gas cap, a damp and clumping mixture of dust and gasoline tumbled from the little opening. My breath came in increasingly shallow gasps, as we moved toward the Collins tractor and screwing the cap. The same freaking clay was stuffed to the top of the tank. The walk back towards our farms was silent, my heart pounding as I struggled to keep my breathing steady, as the inside of my sinuses were scoured raw. First Carl's tractor, then we checked mine. Both were useless and clogged with dust. If Carl was as panicked as I was, he refused to show it. Eddie, I don't know what this means. He yelled to me as we crouched over my tractor, the sky dimming. But I think I'd appreciate it if you stayed with me and Maddie tonight. The storm has to let up in the morning, I'm sure. I could see, at last, the spark of fear in his eyes, and it brought me a little sauce. Carl went ahead and panicky with thoughts of Maddie, sick in bed on her own, and I agreed to follow shortly. I entered my house to gather my shotgun and a tin of coffee. I don't believe I intended to start drinking, but the bloody and crooked eye was shining wetly in my memory, and I drew from the bourbon a few soothing pulls. I recall being tired and weary from the day's grim business, but I don't remember lying down on the cool wood of the floor. When I woke, gripping the gun and empty bottle, the sky was lighter, 
but the whirling black cloud still surrounded the world on all sides. Tuesday. I thought through a fog of pain. Where's it Wednesday? I groggily allowed the shame to flood in when I realized I had left Carl and Maddie waiting all night. After finding all the water drained the night before, I dressed for the storm and headed out to the well. The pump handle strained against me as I pressed downward, bringing up the first sounds of water. What came out of the pump was black and viscous, a thin black paste. I dropped a tin bucket in disgust, feeling yesterday's dread igniting behind the alcohol ache, and I turned quickly towards Carl's farm. On the road, with my destination not yet visible, I turned to see behind me. There wasn't even the faint outline of my barn. In that moment, I was alone, surrounded by a wall of vibrating earth and wind all sides. It could have been all of creation, and I would never know. It could be the end of creation, and I'd never know. I turned back towards Carl's farm and began to run in a panic, frantically hoping I had not altered direction. As the small, unpainted house came into view, I saw Carl's horse, lying motionless on the ground, still tied to the railing on the porch. A small dune of black dust had formed against one side. The door was wide open, slamming into the wall with a sharp crack at each breath from the storm. My panic spiked like a fever when I stepped inside, and my body began shaking violently. Maddie lay spilled from her bed, trailing sheets and a shredded fragment of her nightgown. Her head was twisted, her neck bruised and bent, and bulging, glassy eyes seemed to stare directly at me. Her tongue was thick and black between her teeth. Seated on the bed above her, spindly legs dangling over the edge, was the dried and leathery corpse of Jed Collins, the missing boy. His eye sockets gaped empty and black as he silently grinned out at the world. Carl was nowhere to be found. I backed out quietly from the house, at last truly toning out the chaotic roar of the storm. My mind spun trying to make sense of utter madness, and it stoked the fires inside me, panting, desperate dread flooding my limbs until I found myself propelled blind, running through the storm toward my home. I continued past the hulking silhouette of my barn, legs flooding with fire as I sucked in great lungfuls of choking dust. I thought nothing of destination. I only wanted to get as far away from the storm as possible, far from the empty carnal houses of my neighbors and from empty eyes and wicked grins. I made it as far as thin fork of the Missouri that carves the far edge of my land, I saw through the wall of shifting haze the black outline of the river from a distance. When I approached, legs slowing and legs burning, I saw the river more clearly, wide and unearthly still. The water was black and thick, and in a mute disbelief I watched it flow like slow molasses under a dark and churning sky. And then I began to understand. I nailed the shutters closed, driven by an angry urgency of purpose. The door I braced with Adele's heirloom cabinet 
allowing it to crack and splinter on its side as I stacked a steamer chest on top. I didn't really believe that this would slow whatever would come tonight in the howling darkness, but I wanted to have the time to know, to be sure. The last bourbon bottle lay empty on the floor, and I was glad for this, for the chance to be clear-headed at last. I sat back to the wall, facing the door with a shotgun in my hands, and I waited. The sky darkened and the storm continued to howl. I measured my breaths, trying to hold on to that certain moment of calm, to stretch it out until it dried and snapped apart. It was late at night when it arrived. I could hear the heavy footsteps circling the porch, pulling lightly, testing each shutter. My hands were suddenly slick with sweat on the barrel of the shotgun. The shuffling footsteps stopped in front of the door, and I saw the wood flex ever so slightly as pressure was applied. A scraping sound began to arise, hissing from the small barricade as it began to slide slowly across the floor. The force on the other side of the door increased slowly, steadily, grinding against the heavy barricade until the door was open to the storm and to the night and beyond. The figure swept into the room with a silent grace that surprised me and stood regarding me. Carl's skin seemed to crackle and go taut like paper as he moved, and in the hollow of his empty eyes were tiny, twisting clouds of dust. Blue ribbons of electricity arcing across the sockets. He was smiling, a smile I'd never seen from him, a wide, obscene grin. I felt a strange sort of calm then, the surety of knowing, despite the impossible madness of it all. I raised the shotgun. Eddie! The thing inside Carl hissed in a voice like grinding sand. The corpse took another step towards me, and I saw a black trickle of mud from the edge of its cracked lips. Go ahead and shoot, Eddie. See what it gets you. I smiled back at him, seeing the solution so clearly at last. I took a moment to be thankful that Adele and the girls were gone, thankful in an awful way, that I'd struck her hard enough for her to finally leave me. This would not be the night that they die. It had moved halfway across the room now, shuffling towards me, the malevolent sparks of its eyes locked on me, the now familiar dread reared up to swallow my temporary peace. I saw in the black whirlpool of its eyes a great storm, covering the entire earth in a final gloom. I saw trails and chains of endless murder and atrocity crisscrossing the darkened world into that last eternal night. I saw the end. All I had left was a little sliver of hope, enough to spur me onward. I swung the shotgun up under my chin, feeling the cool of the barrel on my chin. The thing inside Carl jerked to a halt and ceased to smile, and I knew I'd gambled right this time. It needed me, and it can't have me. I made sure I was smiling, drinking in the thing's rage and frustration. The thing roared and with a leap burst from Carl's body, his drying muscles snapping and shredding into long fraying fibers as it shed him like a coat, thudding to the floor behind. 
It was a swirling cloud, a flurry of dust, coursing with lightning and pure, elemental hatred that I saw then, surging toward me faster than I would have believed possible. Thin tendrils coiled and tightened and wound their way through air, twisting toward my mouth and nose. I could feel them caress the raw passages of my lungs, hot, twisting, and unmistakably, horribly, alive as they slid into me. I pulled the trigger. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I hope you enjoyed Dust by author Cameron Suey, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me during this spookiest of seasons for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium, extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror... Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Native, for their support of this show. Don't forget, for 20% off your first purchase with Native, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TOLD during checkout. Once again, for 20% off your first purchase Visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TOLD. That's TOLD, T-O-L-D, during checkout. Be sure to use that code to let the kind folks at Native know that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your time and for giving Native a try this month. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.